Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 119. Today is Sunday, November the 5th, 2017. And today's guest is Nicholas Papadimitriou, an organist, pianist and composer uh, from Greece, but now he is uh, living in the Netherlands because now he is uh, the organist at the Pelgrimskerk in Bad Hövedorp. Uh, in this conversation, you will find out a lot of his musical journey stories, uh, how he first started learning music, piano, and even organ back home in Greece and uh, how he wasn't satisfied with this and he looked for further ideas in Europe, especially in Amsterdam. And that's where he met the famous uh, Jacques Van Ortmersen, Peter Van Dyck and Matthias Havinga, who made a wonderful impact on him as a musician. Uh, but he was not satisfied uh, with this even further because he started improvising and even composing. So in this conversation, you will find out a lot of his uh, approaches with improvisation and composition. And I hope you will stick to the very end uh, of this conversation because I will ask him this question, what are three steps in order to become a better organist and he replied nicholas replied with very wise some ideas i hope you will feel inspired by his generous approach and also start improvising and composing just like he did and experimenting with musical ideas so let's go to the show and let's find out more about nicholas papadimitriou Thank you so much, Nicholas, for joining this conversation. I'm really delighted that we can really connect. You are the first uh, uh, organist uh, uh, from Greece, actually, that I have personally met and talked and now we're recording a conversation. So our uh, range of, of uh, countries and nationalities uh, of guests uh, are expanding and uh, I'm very curious to know more about Greek uh, organ culture and maybe your own experience back home, right? So I know you are living uh, in, in, um, in, uh, in the Netherlands now, but, uh, but of course you know plenty of stuff uh, that interests organists back home too. So thank you so much, you are very generous your ideas and time and welcome to the show well nice to be here thanks a lot for the invitation um where shall i start let's start from the beginning nicholas i'm very curious to know uh, what were your beginnings with organ how did you first uh, fell in love with this instrument well it's it's quite an interesting story because in greece in general there are not so many organs Mm -hmm. So there isn't, one could say there isn't really an organ tradition. So it's indeed rather rare for somebody to come across that instrument in general. Um, in general, we had a piano at home. So since I was a little kid, I always liked to play around. So let's say there was a bit of a musical culture in my family. And I think the first uh, time I had seen an organ was around when I was six years old. And at the time, they were inaugurating the concert hall in Athens. Oh. And that concert hall had a new organ by Kleiss. 
And at the time, they had Nicholas Kinniston from England giving a few concerts there. So that's the first time I actually saw one and heard one, and I was instantly captivated by it. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, from that moment, uh, something uh, told me I wanted to do something with that instrument. I wanted to uh, know more. And uh, it, it is an interesting story because in Greece, since there aren't so many organs, there are also not many organ teachers. So for a while, I actually, in the beginning, I started with piano playing uh, around that time. And I continued always need, knowing in the back of my head that I, eventually I also want to play organ. So later at some moment, and due to a coincidence, my mother got to know one of the organists of the concert hall. Uh-huh. And we got introduced to each other. And that's when I started having lessons. So I was already, let's say, relatively far with piano playing. And then I finally got to start playing organ. You were about 15 years old, right? When you yes, that's started true. playing organ. So at that age, probably uh, you, you knew a lot about uh, the musical ideas, right? Uh, what fascinated, what captivated your attention uh, uh, with this instrument? With these instruments, yeah, it's uh, even though I hadn't been playing organ before I was fifteen, I was quite into trying to like listening a lot of organ repertoire, um, re- looking at yeah the capabilities of the instruments, listening to different recordings. So I got to know a bit the concept behind it, and uh, yeah, a lot of things fascinated me about it actually, both mm-hmm. from a let's say. Uh, scientific point of view as in the organ being a pretty interesting creation which actually has ancient Greek roots that was yeah. a coin of course I found out about it later and of course uh, one of the first composers that came to mind for me was Bach and I had uh-huh. a really big obsession with Bach so some of my favorite Bach pieces were for organ so that kind of drove me interesting story right uh, uh, you you discovered that the roots of these instruments come from greek greece from greek yes. culture, right uh, the engineer ctesibios right Ctesibius, exactly yes uh, fantastic and uh, of course we marvel at his uh, hydraulic organ uh, but but you have to imagine that this instrument stood uh, not very far from your ho- uh, house, right? Uh, in, in kilometers, it's very far, of course, in Alexandria somewhere, yeah. right? But uh, but basically in that region, uh, right? So, yes, it was part of the ingenious uh, invention that Ctesibius uh, did, that this uh, water-pumped uh, instrument came into even uh, Western civilization through Roman Empire and uh, uh, Byzantine Empire and and later on Middle Ages and even into the churches now and uh, it's it's centuries millennium uh, old tradition and it all comes from Greece. Yeah, it's it's quite a yeah. Maybe I'm the Greek organ missionary. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, Nicholas, you were fascinated with, with music of jazz Bach uh, by the time you were starting playing the organ. What was the first Bach's piece that you heard on, on this instrument, do you know? The first piece I heard was 
yeah, it might sound a bit cliche, but it was the Toccata and Fugue in D minor, the well-known one. Uh-huh. The piece we, because we had some CDs at home with some organ music somewhere. And those were those CDs that had the typical hits of organ repertoire, amongst others, the famous D minor, Toccata and Fugue. Uh-huh. So the piece I heard, I think. Yeah, a lot of people are fascinated by the virtuosic uh, runs, right, and passages uh, with the Toccata. What was uh, more uh, fascinating to you, Toccata or the Fugue, by the way? The, the dramatic fugue. opening uh, and uh, diminished chords of the, of the Toccata or the running uh, uh, violin-like passages uh, in the Fugue? It was indeed the fugue, actually, that fascinated me the most. I actually now just remember, I, I recall a moment where since, I, maybe I must have been around 10, and uh, of course, at the time, we didn't have such good internet, so the, um, let's say, libraries and things like this were not yet available. So I remember that I wanted to buy the transcription of this piece for piano mm-hmm. by Busoni. And I remember before that, I was trying to kind of play by ear the organ version, kind of, and find out how it goes. That was quite fun for me being a nine or ten years old. And uh, yeah, in the end, I got the transcription from Busoni, only to find out that actually it was almost a different piece. <laughs> right. And it's much more difficult to play on the piano, the fugue, right? It's, it's extremely difficult. Octaves and, and very virtuoso runs. You have to be quite advanced uh, to, in order to play this on piano. True. And indeed, after I saw the organ score, I was surprised on how much simpler it looked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the feet is just like the third hand and basically yep. nothing very fancy about it, right? Alternate uh, uh, toes technique, left, right, left, right, uh, most of the time. Uh, but when you add the uh, the uh, bass line to the left hand, uh, right passages, it becomes increasingly difficult unless you play with four hands as a piano duet. Yeah, that's true. that's true. Yes. Right. That's also possible, and people have done this in the past. So wonderful, Bach's D minor toccata. What happened next, uh, Nicholas? Uh, how did you decided to become a professional at this? Of course, uh, this passion of yours, right? Uh, uh, you were fascinated with music of Bach. How did you decide to devote your life to this instrument and to this uh, career? This is an interesting question indeed, because I think it is a result of, let's say, a natural progression through my life. It wasn't, let's say, one day that I woke up and I decided it. It started making more sense and more sense as I was, let's say, growing. Uh, Because, let's say, also during high school, I continued with piano and with organ, and I started getting better at it. And I started thinking, hey, I'm increasingly interested. And of course, at some moment, you get to think, what would I like to do after high school? And uh, both my parents were very supportive in my idea of pursuing it professionally. So, yeah, I think it was a bit of a my initiative, but at the same time, the support of the people around me who, let's say, liked the idea and promoted it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It's good to have a supportive family, right? 
uh, yes. because sometimes it's the opposite. You you have the passion, you have the vision and inspiration, um, even a calling maybe, right? To become an organist. And then your family, your parents are basically from another field. And then they say, no, 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 choose uh, the real profession, like uh, yeah, the yeah. lawyer or medicine or um, business, something, right? Um, but that wasn't the case in your family. No, I'm very glad it wasn't. It's actually, they were all like completely supporting me. And uh, because also my family is relatively, they come from, a, my mother is an actress. Uh -huh. And my dad is a sound engineer. So they have worked in other fields of, let's say, in, in the arts, so to say. Yes. So um, it, it is uh, in, in that tradition. So it, it didn't seem like an uh, outside concept to them. And I'm very exactly. glad. They knew the arts uh, from up close, right? Uh, acting is, uh, is one form of, of art. Uh, sound engineering and working with, uh, with music is also another sphere with technology, right? And it's good that, that uh, your, your path led to the artistic direction quite smoothly, I say, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, true, true. So, uh, of course, you had to choose the school and the teacher, right? Uh, how did you decide to uh, study at, um, at the, uh, let's say, in Corfu, right, first? But uh, what was your first uh, university that you studied in, uh, in, um, in, in Greece, right? That was, yes, it was also an interesting story because due to how the system of education works in Greece, once you finish high school, you're mm -hmm. kind of automatically accepted to a certain university you have applied for. Uh -huh. So in Greece, conservatories are not exactly how they are, for instance, in the Netherlands or in France or in other countries. They're a bit of uh, like pr mostly private institutions that are not, they can't offer, let's say, a bachelor diploma or a master's. Uh, so the next closest thing is musicology. Uh -huh. And uh, there are three departments of musicology, one in Athens, one in Corfu, and one in Thessaloniki. And I was accepted in the one in Corfu. So that was directly after high school. But I did go there. But I must say that, yeah, in, in the end, it was a pretty vague place. So I, I wasn't, it wasn't exactly for me. Um, also, or, also in organization-wise, but also I, I didn't really find teachers that fit with me. Right. And, and unfortunately, there were not really organ teachers there either. So I would then focus on piano there. But due to circumstances, I decided to not continue there and just turn my attention to looking something in another country because I anyway had that in mind to do it sooner or later. Right. And then we came, yes, sorry. Yes, so what happened next? Uh, you decided to go to the to Netherlands, right? To the Netherlands. Yes, I did a, quite a extensive research of, I went to actually uh, in the Netherlands and I went also to Denmark. Right. So I had a bit of a tour with all great teachers, very nice places. And in, in the end, I um, did the entrance exam in the conservatory in Amsterdam and I was accepted, so... I was like, yes, fine. Uh -huh. Of course, before I had met teachers in many places and I had ended up that for me, at least the most, the best solution for me and the, the nicest was Amsterdam. 
Amsterdam, of course, it's, it's the center in, in this region, uh, probably with a lot of fantastic instruments and fantastic teachers, right? Uh, of course, we are very sorry that that uh, Jacques Vanot Ortmersen is not lo no longer with us. Uh, but uh, have you met him uh, studying while studying uh, the organ? Of course, he was the first teacher I actually met in Amsterdam, and I uh -huh. started to study with him for the first two years. And during yeah, it was the unfortunate moment during my third year that he passed away. Uh, uh -huh. But I did have quite a lot of input from him, and it's extremely. I am extremely appreciative of it. Right. Well, the Dutch tradition is fantastic because it 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 all focuses on 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 good posture and and good habits of organ playing, how to sit down on the organ bench and how to adapt yourself and your body positions to historical instruments, right? How to play with with ease. And of course, it all connects uh, to Geneva psalm traditions, right? 150 psalms. Do you like uh, this collection of, of psalms? Yes, for sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, have you have you uh, have you played them? Have you harmonized? I, I can suspect, since you are uh, also working in improvisation, that psalms and let's say even Lutheran chorales uh, have foundation uh, in your improvisation studies as well. Besides continua, yes, that's that's for sure. Psalms and hymns and other things like this have often been material to experiment with and to improvise and to compose mm -hmm. and uh, yeah they, they they for sure provide a great basis for thematic material right and uh, what else did you learn from Jacques van Ortmersen? a lot of things well let, let me try to think what's the best way to let's say Jacques had let's say what I really liked in his philosophy he, he was a person that said that when you go to a restaurant and you are served a nice dish, you don't care how the chef made it, but you care that it's nice. And it's kind of this tradition that he tried to also portray through giving you the right tools to use the organ and making a nice, aesthetically, musically nice result. And he was a great pedagogue. Yeah, we rem many, all of his students here, we all remember stories he used to say and these kind of things continue and will continue. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, he sometimes, I mean, he insisted quite a lot on technique, but I completely understand why <laughs> a few years later, uh, because he really focused on giving you the right tools to really express what you want to do without having any problems with you you can technically play on any instrument you want and you will feel right at home mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right uh, because uh, the, the let's say uh, historical dutch organs are not the easiest instruments to play and if you can adapt to those instruments you can play almost anywhere that is true and uh, that is one of the big advantages i'm very happy and very uh, glad i have i have such opportunities to play in such great instruments that are available in the netherlands in general uh, because we get to we get some of the most special historical organs from different times from different famous builders 
such as uh, Schnitger, such as uh, Müller, and Bach's organs and Hinz organs. And of course, these are many times quite hard to play, especially if you are not used to their touch and their setting. And uh, yeah, it's quite an achievement to be able to adapt to all of them, but it's definitely worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the acoustics in these churches are so fabulous, right? Especially for people from United States or from other yeah. side of the Atlantic, where they're used to uh, to to having uh, almost no echo, no reverberation. And they, when they come to organ tours uh, to Europe and and, and other parts of uh, of Northern Europe and and the Netherlands, they are discovered that that all those gothic cathedrals right they have tremendous spaces and uh, you have to play quite differently then that is indeed true and uh, yeah i must say that most churches here have quite big acoustics i mean the big churches have relatively big acoustics and i had done my final exam in the bavo in harlem mm -hmm. and that's quite an instrument to adapt to especially when it comes to the acoustics uh, because what you hear upstairs in the organ gallery is not a, at all what is sounding downstairs where people sit. So that's a very interesting experience on adapting your playing on every place you go. And uh, yeah. I met uh, Jacques uh, if, uh, twice, I think, in Sweden, in Gothenburg Organ Academy back in 2000 and 2002. And uh, yes, I've noticed that uh, he uh, insists on a good technique, but as you say, it, it has a point, uh, right, uh, of, of uh, letting, you, uh, letting you play uh, with confidence, with ease, with adaptation to the instruments, and not the other way around. You don't force uh, the instrument, but you let it play. Yes, exactly. And uh, it's all about, in a way, it's all about the ergonomy of organ playing. Yeah. The, spending the least amount of effort, tense, uh, having the least amount of tension, really being conscious about what you do with the instrument. And then the, you also are more conscious about how the instrument reacts and how the phrasing is and how the sound is produced. And all these things make a really big impact at the end result. And Nicholas, uh, of course, this this concept of playing with uh, simplicity, minimalistic approach is not new, right? Uh, we know stories about Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, how he played all, and his fingers and feet were almost, uh, you know, stationary. Uh, basically, uh, uh, people around him were marveling how he could play with such an ease, right? Yeah, and that's true. And I think that is a bit also what, in general, teachers here try to uh, promote. Uh, not only, of course, it's not only the case of Bach, it's also Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach has uh, written quite a lot about that. And uh, yeah, it's not, let's say, that's why it's, it's not nonsense, so to say. So it, it's not at all a new thing, but it is also... One, when one is doing it, it's good to know what the point is. So it doesn't seem like they have to do it for the sake of just doing it. But really, it does have a significant result. And it does take also, of course, time to develop it. It's something that takes mm -hmm. patience, adapting to this technique. And Nicholas, when you met, uh, for example, Peter Van Dyke later, uh, 
was his teaching uh, Carnel different than Jacques or he was continuing that tradition? I would say it is quite close. It wasn't like uh, a black and white transition. It, it was quite similar with small details that are different, but overall the, the approach focuses on the same aspects. Mm -hmm. I was lucky to to have two podcast conversations with Peter, uh, and uh, one was just recently, a couple of months ago, uh, when he was visiting Vilnius here, and he gave a master class to students uh, uh, from this country, and I had uh, this luck of uh, observing how he teaches, and uh, a lot of things that you said about Jack also resonated with me uh, when 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 Peter played and uh, his ideas too. Yeah, it's it's probably uh, the the broad uh, Dutch tradition, generally speaking. Yeah, I, it might be so indeed. But I must say that it, it is a tradition that makes sense. And I think that it promotes a certain logic that once you have, once you have conquered, so to say, then there, most organs you are able to play with no problem at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happens when you go to non-historical organ or in a dead acoustics, like in Weizsächerk, you know, there is... A, I think this organ, beautiful uh, Baroque organ, but the space is not very reverberant as I remember. In Valsakert, yes, it is indeed less reverberant, but I would still not call it extremely dry. It has, a, mm -hmm. let's say, a pleasant short acoustic, um, but the organ is so marvelous in itself that it doesn't affect, it's not affected at all by that. Mm -hmm. So I must say, especially for that organ, for Baroque music, it's not the biggest organ ever. It doesn't have the most stops, but every single stop it has is extremely special. Right. Right, right, right. Uh, I remember the demonstration that Jacques gave to to the students uh, from all over the world uh, at this Alkmaar Organ Academy. I was also there um, uh, at that time, and he was the organist at that church, right? So he know he knew everything inside out. He knew if there was one person that knew that organ well, it was probably him and probably Leonard before him. Uh, mm -hmm. So for sure, he knew how to properly handle it to make the best out of its sound. Right. Uh, because at first, it's an organ that doesn't seem particularly difficult to play, but you have so much control over the release of the keys and the touch and this kind of things that the sound is affected a lot by how you play. Yeah, not every instrument reacts this way to the player, right? Uh, that's true, that's true. That mm -hmm. is mostly for historical organs that they tend to have this, uh, since the, let's say the connection is mechanical, then your actions on the keyboard are more translated in a musical way or in a sound way. Uh, but even that, uh, when the, the action is not very sensitive, then, then the connection is not that apparent. And in Walsäcker, I think it is very sensitive, right? It is, yes. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Wonderful. So you got the best of uh, both uh, Jacques and Peter. Who are other mentors of yours? Uh, what did you learn from, from the Dutch tradition going forward? I have, uh, I, I, we should of course not forget, I have one more teacher, that yes. is Matthias. Matthias Havinga. Havinga, yes. Mm -hmm. He's also a wonderful teacher. 
And uh, of course, everybody, what I like is that everybody is working together. And uh, it is always nice to have more opinions. And it's always nice to hear new things, even when two teachers disagree, which is the, where the most interesting things about your own development appear, because then you get to have this input up for yourself and think, because that's also something I've learned is to use your ears, basically, mm -hmm. and ask yourself, do I like this? What would I like? How can I achieve what I like? In the end, it's about getting the right tools and then expressing your own self using those tools. Right, right, Nicholas. So, of course, uh, remembering your days back in Corfu, of course, you were interested in uh, music theory, right? And we have not to forget that you are also a composer. How did this music theory background help you shape your career and get interested into creating music? Um, since I started with music theory in, in Greece, I was always very interested in harmony. So that was mm -hmm. one of the first subjects that really caught my attention and the logic it creates, the progressions, harmonic progressions. And I started experimenting with them on the piano, of course. So I was many times already doing things on the piano that at the time I didn't know what they were theoretically speaking, but I, I, when I found out later, I could use them in a better way. And it was one of the points that really started developing my ears on, yeah, different kind of sounds, different kind of harmonies, different kind of things. So I must say that experimenting for me on the piano, even before I had the proper theoretical knowledge, was a, a key in developing my ear in that direction. So, yeah, eventually I finished the theory studies in Greece. So at the time I went to Amsterdam, I already had, uh, let's say, a good harmony knowledge and analysis and this kind of stuff. And later I started thinking, because in the meantime, I, of course, improvisation was kind of there, because since I was experimenting with harmonic progressions and things on the piano, it was a bit a natural thing to occur. And... Uh, yeah, later I started improvising more and at some moments I had some pretty nice musical ideas and then I wrote them down mm -hmm. and later I thought maybe I can make something out of it or I li liked an improvisation then I wrote it down and worked on it later. So in that way I took more the composition term, so out, more out of experience and experimenting and mm -hmm. yeah, basically. Yeah. It's very interesting you mentioned um, experimenting. I think people sometimes shy away from experience and uh, experiments and only play what's written on the page, right? Uh, and don't read the written down music as um, as a model for further experiments, right? And uh, what you did, congratulations. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, this is something I believe is in general a bit a result of let's say, the norms of recent years in classical music in general, not necessarily only organ, but it's more that uh, there, there seems to be this tendency of people just to play a repertoire. And let's say the creative aspect of uh, music making, for instance, improvising, it has kind of faded away as a result of that. And that's a, a tremendous pity, in my opinion, because I think it's such creative processes that are the most rewarding and uh, fun in the end 
things in music and also broaden one's horizons in how he listens to things. Completely true. Uh, I think uh, without that, uh, we were we would be quite shy, and uh, uh, and this curiosity will lead us maybe to unknown direction, right? Maybe around the corner we will make uh, a meeting with with some kind of uh, I don't know uh, very artistic inspiration that could lead us and propel us forward, right? And we can then later write it down or play it further on the spot. But it's important to, to stay curious, don't you think? Yes, I think so. And that, that's the clue in keeping it fresh also. Because yes. it's when you experiment with something and you know that even if you use the same theme twice, the overall outcome won't be the same. So you have this concept of, let's say, dynamic music generation instead of just playing something that already exists, which of course is fine, but in, in the creative aspect, it is something that really has an effect, I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we look at the models of early masters, and sometimes we, we want to create something of our own, uh, and we see, for example, those beautiful ritornellos, right? Uh, which uh, like they are like interludes or uh, introductions of the co for for the chorals, choral preludes, and they connect various uh, modulations, right, of choral phrases. And we can use them in our playing as well. But but if we try to write down things, we could easily notate as they are written. And uh, they would be rigid the same way as in the beginning, like uh, second repetition, third repetition. And we would really have to think about changing things and including variation very consciously if we write down. But if we just play things, repetition is almost never a case. We always vary things, right? Because it's so difficult to remember. Exactly. It, it happens as a result of our own nature, actually, maybe yeah. our own flaws. <laughs> maybe if we could remember it exactly, we would do it. But it, since we can't, it results in an automatic set of variation making. Yeah, 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 and this vitality, this uh, this living living organism that that musical piece becomes is very fascinating to the listener as well because they can hear what's going on sometimes. Oh, I know this theme. Oh, I know this figure. It's from the beginning and other places, but it's not the same. He or yeah. she uses it differently every time. Yeah, that that is especially interesting. I it's like, like yeah. I was just going to say, it's like uh, telling stories, right, uh, in literate forms. Uh, we never repeat things twice, right? We say differently. Uh, so the same is with musical rhetoric. I was about to say actually the same thing about uh, storytelling, because that's what improvising <laughs> is in the end. Yeah, if I like to think of it in a way, it's like you're telling a story. Uh, and much like when you tell a story, you might know what you're talking about, so you ha might have an idea, but of course you can adapt the story, you can say it in a particular way, uh, it might have endings that people didn't expect, it might be this, it might be the other, so of course the improvisation is a kind of a storytelling through music. Exactly. Uh, when you create uh, your musical pieces, right, uh, uh, Nicholas, do you also think in terms of storytelling or purely uh, in musical theory terms? 
Um, it depends. It, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. For instance, um, now recently I've been working on writing a composition for piano and voice mm -hmm. uh, based on a poem of a famous Greek poet. Uh, so in, in that sense, I do think of it also as a storytelling because the poem is so powerful in itself that I try to portray what it says through the music. Yeah. Uh, for other compositions, I don't necessarily think of, let's say, a particular story literally behind it. So I always find something to do with, so that, for instance, when I write a set of variations, they should have a background story in themselves on why are they the way they are, mm -hmm. but not necessarily in the sense of telling a literal story. Right. So talking about creating further, uh, what is your uh, stylistic uh, approach? Do you have a, a model or, a, or um, several models that you work from uh, or maybe mm, you are inspired from other masters from the past or maybe you have already found your own, so to say, style? Well, I think it's a pretty hard uh, thing for me to actually really say I have found my style. I think that's something that was developing and will never be exactly the same from one moment to the other. Uh, but in, in general, I would say that my composition style in general relies more on music aesthetics than trying to reinvent the wheel, so to say. So my style ends up being a bit like late romantic in general mm -hmm. late romantic to a bit also modern sometimes uh, but that's not a result of me trying to copy a composer it's just a result of what i like it's very simple actually it, mm -hmm. it is let's say the, the my natural tendency of playing things end up in that style so i that's the style i like to work best with at least for now and of course, it might be the case with the instrument at hand, yes? What kind of organ is in your church, which is, you are the organist at Pilgrim's Kirk, right? That is correct. Well, it's not one of the best or one of the most glorious organs. It's a two manual around 30 stops organ in neo-baroque in style. It is in very good condition and makes mm -hmm. a great instrument also for concert, but also for practicing. Yeah, I don't have one that is comparable to Valsekerk or uh, the Bavo yet, mm -hmm. but that's yet to come. Yes. So, of course, uh, when you have this instrument, you can do a lot of things, right? And uh, I suspect uh, usually creators and organists who want to create something, they, they have... Um, uh, some kind of musical language under their fingers or in their mind that they're ca capable and comfortable in using. So you say late romantic and chromatic harmony and uh, early modern techniques, if you know this really well, you naturally tend to use it, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. That's correct. So it, one is the other in a way. Mm -hmm. So I have something in mind, then also my fingers know something, so then it's combined, then I play something, then I might write it down and experiment more with it. Yeah, and in the end, I get this kind of result that for me, it comes naturally. It's not, I'm not forcing myself to make it uh, necessarily sound like this or like something else. Yeah. Uh, was it always this, the case with, your, with this style or uh, did you change over time? 
I think I did change over time. In the beginning, I was much more Baroque-oriented, actually, in my style. Mm-hmm. So I really liked more preludes and fugues and things that really were in the style of which I still like doing sometimes, just writing a fugue uh, in a Baroque style. But I must say, as I uh, continued developing as an organist, and I also got exposed to more let's say, composers of the late Romantic era for organ, let's say Max Reger and César Frank, definitely influences in my ideas. Yeah, I started yes. being also captivated by their style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember uh, I remember those early pieces that I wrote also. They were based on the hymn harmonizations and him, him improvisations that I made in the style of, of let's say, Krebs, right? But yeah. I, I tried to copy the, the style of, of Bach, of course, but I, I wasn't good at enough, <laughs> so it became Krebs. And I remember sending those, uh, those um, manuscripts to the publisher in the United States. Uh, I think it was Wayne Leopold. And uh, I got the, the um, uh, response that, Oh, it's it's interesting that you're trying to imitate the style, but you know nobody can really compete with Herr Bach. You know, oh. so that, that's what when I d- understood that I have to look deeper and uh, search for uh, for my own language. Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, you know, stylistic writing is one thing, and I think it's perfectly respectable. But of course. Yeah, the the master already existed. And of course, creating something doesn't necessarily mean that it's competing with him. It can also be just complementing a style because many people, for instance, like the style but run out of pieces to listen to. So sometimes, yeah, having some fresh material uh, portrayed through the prism of a composer, of course, it will never be the same and we all know that. But yeah, maybe that's also part of the story. But you know what happens here if we are trying to uh, extend this story, musical style into other paradigms and try to create something of our own, it's not very bad because in literary terms, it's called fan fiction. If you, if you like, let's say, a book of certain author or a story of certain author, let's say Star Wars, right? Yeah. And you want to, to to keep going in the Star Wars universe, right? And you create stories of your own based on those characters and those settings, right? And you create and continue those uh, adventures of your own. Uh, people actually are going to relate because there are thousands and even millions of people uh, around the world who are interested in this already. That's true, indeed. And I don't think that is, in, in, in the same way as in composing music, I don't think that is necessarily uh, competing, let's say, with the company that wrote Star Wars in the beginning. You're just extending it in your yeah. own way. And, of course, whether or not that's a convincing thing to do is up to your the people who listen to or see to judge. But, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, and other uh, people are writing similar things, and you read similar books, right, based on those fan fiction stories, and you kind of interact. It's a little community. So I guess it's the same with organists who try to improvise, let's say, in this in the Baroque style, in the Romantic style, in the in the let's say impressionistic style. They they all get something out of it uh, together as a community, right? Interchanging ideas. 
Yes, I, I think so too. And I also think that eventually on whatever style you start with, slowly you actually are led to your own style. Mm-hmm. So eventually it is the beginning of finding your own styles. You can start on the left, you can start on the right, and eventually you get to find also what your own style is. Yeah, and as you say, it's always changing, right? It's never constant, it's always fluid. Yeah, I think uh, music is a living form, and the more uh, stimuli one hears and one gets over the years, the more his own perception and style changes. So yes, it's not necessarily, I don't know many composers Uh, especially later that compose in the same way from the beginning of their lives to the end of their lives. No, that would be bad. Sometimes it it evolves in weird ways. Sometimes it evolves in ways that you didn't expect. But I think this is a very uh, trivial part, this this natural evolution of everybody, every composer's style. So, Nicolas, what is the most challenging thing for you when you compose? That's a very good question, because I must say that composing in general for me isn't a linear process. Of course, many times I have, let's say, a period of, like, say, a week that I can't get any good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it is part, let's say, of the process. To It needs also time, and it is needs also time for to think and to have new hearings and not force it. For me, at least, from my experience, whenever I am stuck in something and I try to force it, it doesn't improve. And usually the best ideas come in moments I never expect. Like I start to practice a piece and at some moment my mind wanders and I start improvising with something. And then I think, oh, I, this is what I was missing. Um, yeah, with composing in general, it's tricky thing is about structure and mm-hmm. how to present your ideas in an order that are comprehensible and make sense, so to say. So that they are not lost in the river of, let's say, music. Uh, and that's always a tricky thing to find. And of course, it always helps to have a couple of people listen to it and think, what do they think about it? Because sometimes when you compose, you're so much in your own composition world that you can't, uh, your, let's say, perception of the composition changes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, and of course, on the other hand, uh, it's it's quite easy to compose something very structurally clear and uh, uh, you know but at the same time it would be very boring if, if it's uh, one two three one two three uh, kind of uh, uh, linear and rhythmically boring way of writing right you have to leave some su- surprise probably well exactly and that is with music in general this is this is how it works you have uh, an expectation as a listener and sometimes this expectation is met Sometimes this expectation is happily not met. So you get a surprise. You thought it was going somewhere and it was going somewhere else. And it's this kind of, a, let's say, exceptions that make pieces special and make moments memorable. Creating tension, creating resolution after the tension. It's a balance between all these things. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, uh, what about your playing the organ then? Uh, organ playing now what is the most challenging thing for you Mm. for me the most challenging thing is um currently i'm going a bit further in later pieces so messian for instance i haven't had so much experience with messian yet so i'm exploring his world and also 
adapting the technical difficulties of Messiaen on the organs we have here, which can be tricky, but it is a, it's a, in general, it's a pretty ple pleasant process. And also, of course, digging deeper in the musical meaning of every composer, that's of course a process that can go on forever. In a way, I wouldn't say I find it difficult, but it's definitely challenging. Mm -hmm. So if you want to play Messian on the Dutch instruments, right, sometimes, how can you adapt things? What do you do sometimes? Most likely the first thing that you will encounter on these organs is that you don't have enough keys. So mm. many times you have to play things an octave lower with mm. using four foot pitches, for instance, so that it actually sounds at the right pitch. Uh, second is that many of these pieces were written for organs with a very soft touch or with a Barker machine, much like French organs. And then when you have to play with manual coupleds and these kind of things, it can become quite challenging. So it is about further, let's say, developing your technique so that you can still, and of course, it is possible once you have gone through four years of studying here. Um, but still, of course, it remains a, a challenge to adapt this to really difficult pieces that require legato and um, octaves and big chords. And in the end, there are solutions. So it is doable. It's not impossible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, uh, uh, when we play mechanical instruments, sometimes playing with with mechanical couplers is really tricky. Um, uh, but sometimes it's not even necessary if if the sound uh, sound available is so rich and there are many stops to choose from, right? If if it's that a big in general, when we play romantic music that requires a lot of sound, but at the same time is technically difficult, we try not to make our life even more difficult by adding too many couplers. Uh, usually with one coupler, it's actually fine. It's when you add two couplers that things get really serious. And uh, usually we do have enough choices on one manual by itself to make, let's say, a convincing result of what we want. And then we, let's say, carefully and strategically placed which passages will be played with a coupler, which one's not. Uh, and yeah, and above all, staying in close contact with the keys and being relaxed. Exactly. Uh, so you have to think very wisely about uh, uh, how, to, how to make sense of all those uh, registrational choices that composer wrote, perhaps in French uh, instruments, and you have to adapt on your situation, right? Let's say a person uh, is, is in another country, not only in, in, in the Dutch tradition, but let's say in, in the uh, Danish tradition, right? Or the Spanish tradition, or in America, or Australia, English tradition, let's say. They all have different things, but I think uh, the most uh, important thing is still to communicate the story behind the music, right? And that is exactly what is the most important thing indeed. It is about mm. translating the music into something that is, I mean, you use an organ. It, of course, sometimes you might not have precisely the stops a composer asks, but of course that is not the point. The point is to transmit the message the composer wants. And of course, many times you need to also improvise in how you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to be very wise. Of course, um, what helps is uh, that you know your piece inside out, right? You analyze probably 
not only in terms of modulations and chords and modes used and uh, rhythms in terms of messian, but also in, on a deeper level, you know, what is behind those uh, religious cycles that he wrote, right? Uh, how he worked and, and how you can transfer this message to your listener in a new situation, in a, on the new instrument. Yes, of course. And with Messian, especially, that is especially true because usually many of his compositions have such a background, a religious background about something. And then each, uh, let's say, composition includes that somehow in it. And uh, it's your challenge to somehow translate this, A, into the music and B, into the sound. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, we are getting close to our, uh, wrapping up our wonderful conversation and it's, it's been really inspiring to listen to you and I hope people will get so much out of this and get uh, their, their try, try their things uh, on paper and experiment with musical ideas on the instrument as, as you did. But before we close, uh, Nicholas, could you uh, mention three steps that an or organist should take in order to get better? Let me think. Three steps for yeah. somebody to get better. Yeah, um, as an organist, to become a better organist, let's say. Okay, in, in the first place, I would say patience is very important. So people shouldn't necessarily expect to have quick results and magic potions and secret recipes it, it is more about yeah being patient uh, second of all is getting a good technique mm -hmm. and that will really help you get out of your all the things that might have been stopping you from playing things and of course that takes time but uh, it also makes a really big difference in the the, the final result and as a last, I would say use your ears. Mm -hmm. Good, good one. You know, I, I ask uh, this question almost every every guest, and each person, each organist has a different, totally different answer, uh, right? And um, but they are all good answers. There are no right, no wrong answers here, right? True, of course. I mean. Uh, Everybody has their own opinions, but in the end, we all agree. We all have common grounds. Yes, yes, yes. In the end, all those things lead to the mastery of the instrument and to the better storytelling as, as a performer. Yes, indeed. Uh, wonderful. So, Nicholas, we are very. Uh, um, uh, I'm very glad we we have met, and I hope uh, we meet again in perhaps even in person. Uh, but before we uh, end this conversation, could you give our listeners a link where they can find you and your work online? Of course, my. Uh, they. I would urge them to visit my personal website. That is www dot nicolaspapadimitriou.com Nicolas written with a CH there they can find my upcoming concerts uh, my compositions my biography videos and more 
Wonderful. I'll make sure to include this uh, link in the description of this conversation and people can literally click and visit you online and support and say hello and, and basically motivate you to create even further. Well, I, I hope. <laughs> uh, have a great evening in Amsterdam. Will you be practicing tonight? Or tonight I will be having, let's see, now it's five, I'll be having a rehearsal with a choir. I'm replacing somebody at mm -hmm. 7.30 and I think until then I will go practice a bit for what I have to do in the rehearsal. Me too. I'm also going to run to practice some books, Tehude. Nice. Thank you so much, Nicholas. You've been wonderful and very inspiring guest. Thank you so much. Keep creating and keep sharing your music with the world. I will continue. I will do my best. And it was an honor being interviewed. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you online really soon.